Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. Today, we get to speak with Judith Pearson. She's the president and CEO of Nomadics. Nomadics helps fiduciaries, officers, directors, trust companies, and law firms identify the risks in their practices and insure them against liability. She has over 37 years of experience with Chubb AIG and was a pioneer in the development of officers and directors liability coverage for Aon. We're going to be focusing on the liability issues facing fiduciaries, including individuals, law firms, corporate trustees, and private trust companies. Welcome aboard, Judy. Thank you so much, Fraser. So happy to be here. Thank you. We're talking about trustees and liabilities and fiduciaries. I thought I'd give a quick little blurb for our listeners about the word trust and trustee, because these are sort of words with not many letters in them, but can be having very big concepts and be all-encompassing. The first thing I just wanted to let people know is that a trust in general has three main roles. The first is the grantor, and that's the person forming it. The second is the trustee, and that's the person or the entity that's in charge of running the trust. And the third are the beneficiaries, those people who will benefit from the trust ultimately. So from an insurance perspective, what do you see as the responsibility of the trustee, that person who is in charge of running the trust, that is safeguarding the assets and making decisions about investments and distributions? In general, the trustees have what seems like four simple roles administration, distribution, investing, and reporting. They seem very simple, but when you really get into it, you have to understand the enormity of the job in context of the contractual and legal framework. Everything is set up by the trust, but there are also laws that guide it, litigation that's formed, how they're supposed to act. The second piece is there are specific duties that you have to live up to. So for example, the duty of loyalty, which is the trustee has to put all interests of the beneficiaries in front of their own and the duty of care to make sure that they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. One of the things that I remember from my trust company days is we'd always have a sheet that showed a lot of these types of roles and responsibilities and all the different subtasks and responsibilities under them. And that was meant to sort of let people know, or in a sense, scare them into understanding that they're taking on a really big situation here when becoming a trustee. And it's so important when you're working for a trust company and you're an educated trust officer, you have all those resources for yourself. But what I see happening quite often is you either have the grantor asking friends or family members to take on those roles or professionals that they've worked with, such as lawyers and CPAs and RIAs, each one having a particular skill set, which is why they've been asked to take on this very important role. But when you think about it, each one of those professionals has new skill sets to learn. And so I like to use an example of the lawyer or the CPA. So let's start with the lawyer. The lawyer is generally asked to take on that role because they've been protecting the grantor for so many years as they've been setting up the estate plan and 
working through other business aspects or financial aspects. But when that lawyer now has to shift to being a trustee, their loyalty is to the beneficiary and not to the grantor. A, that can be a very difficult shift, but more importantly, they understand the estate plan. They understand the estate plan really well, but they might not understand the accounting. And so it's a whole new skill set that they've got to learn or at least hire the right professionals to make sure it's all being done correctly. So one of the things that I've run into both from an individual trustee perspective, corporate trustee perspective, and elsewhere is that many of them are still starting to get around the idea of first understanding and then shielding themselves from the liability that can take place with a bunch of these decisions. It doesn't take much imagination to think that beneficiaries can get cranky with certain decisions that you make and may come after you later. Certain missteps around the investment process may cause something where someone could sue you from the administration and reporting side of things. Those are all complicated and fraught with peril. I was running through some ideas with the idea of what good practices occur when shielding oneself from liability. I did a podcast with Ike Devji recently talking about asset protection, and there were three main components that I thought were useful early asset protection 101 types of steps for trustees. The first was the idea of having good policies, procedures, record keeping, and documentation of decision making and action. Having all of that, I mean, it seems obvious, but it's one of those things where having that in place, having sort of, I guess, good hygiene around performing the job of a trustee is a good way to reduce the possibility of creating liability-causing situations. The second one was setting up good structures to shield liability and to get adequate support for those tasks that you're taking on. That can be everything from corporate structuring, forming LLCs around yourself, special purpose entities, but also having help from experts and understanding what's taking place on that front. And then the third one is, and this is where I think we can really dive in with your expertise, is identifying those reasonable risks that take place with the job of being a trustee and then getting reasonable insurance to make sure that when life inevitably happens and something goes wrong, you've got someone in the background able to insure your actions. So against that backdrop, take us through a little bit about how trustee liability insurance looks. To me, it looks a little bit like errors and omissions insurance. It looks a little bit like directors and officers insurance. It's probably got some element of property and casualty stitched in there somewhere. It also, in our previous discussions, it seems like it's something that's a little bit different and maybe a little bit of all three. Maybe take us through a little bit about what it looks like. I want to take you through it in two different formats. One is the traditional trustee role which is a trustee that has all four roles and responsibilities, even if they delegate out or hire professionals to handle those roles and responsibilities. That's one set of structures that we need to look at. The other is in the directed trust environment. So if we start with the traditional trustee with the additional trustee role, Trustee liability insurance is really a form of errors and omissions, like you're saying, professional liability. There are the intention is to cover alleged wrongful acts while carrying out these duties. And it's very important that the policy covers advancement of defense costs. And I'll get into why that is. The first part of identifying the risk is you have to understand look at what are the roles and responsibilities 
making sure that all those professional services are covered. It seems very easy. You just say, well, we'll provide them as they're a trustee. Well, that individual may be a trust protector. That individual may also have responsibility as power of attorney. That person may have other administrative type roles that are not covered by definition in trustee liability, but have to be added. So it's very important when you're setting up the policy itself is to make sure that you've identified all the roles and responsibilities and the services so it can be structured appropriately. The other piece is oftentimes the trustee believes that they've got indemnification. I would say a large portion, especially of older trusts, don't have an indemnification agreement in them. So it's important to look for that indemnification agreement. If there is an indemnification agreement, it always says to the fullest extent of the law, and we cannot indemnify if there's gross negligence or intentional misconduct. Well, of course, every trustee says we would never do something like that. The challenge is the plaintiff's bar. So I worked with fiduciary litigators to understand how they go after the trustees to, in that technical way, squeeze them for a settlement. And the first thing that they do is they allege gross negligence or intentional misconduct. And what that means is you no longer have the indemnification agreement. If the insurance policy is structured correctly, it will advance all the defense costs until the individual is proven in final adjudication that they have done those kinds of acts. And if they never do, then the insurance stays in place. So it's really important to not hang your hat on that indemnification agreement because too much can happen when the plaintiff's bar gets involved. So when you get to that point where the plaintiff's bar is throwing the kitchen sink at you, the concept of going through the gross negligence standard and making sure that that's in place and that your activities are documented such that you are not grossly negligent. What then happens, I guess another sort of misconception that we can talk about is the idea that, and this is maybe a more blunt version of this, especially for individual trustees on smaller situations, that one's umbrella policy covers them for this type of role that they're taking on. That seems to be sort of an even more destructive way to think that you're insured for activities for a very complicated task. So if you're talking about a personal umbrella or a very broad personal insurance policy provided like the big high net worth carriers like Chubb or AIG, that is not the intent to cover something like this under those policies. And there are exclusions. They're not listed. It is not something that somebody should rely upon. So let's get back to the concept of the bifurcation that you were talking about, where you start moving toward direction trusts. And I'm going to be people listening who know exactly what I'm talking about and other people who hear that, and that's going to be a new term. Essentially, a direction trust is a form of a trust where a trustee can delegate or direct, and there's a difference between the two depending on what state you're in, activities where they may not be expert or where the family or the grantor of the trust thinks that they want different roles to be fulfilled by different people. Frequently, an administrative trustee is put in place to get some of the benefits of state jurisdiction, and then the functions of 
direction in terms of investments and direction in terms of distributions are handed off to somebody else or some other group so that they get the best of both worlds in some ways. So against that backdrop, Judith, take us through a little bit on what the direction trust world looks like in terms of fiduciary liability. So I think the first piece is taking a look at understanding each party's roles and responsibility. And it seems like it could be very clear through the documents. But when you look at it, oftentimes execution is different than the structure of the agreement. And we get concerned about the idea that when a beneficiary now has an opportunity for a distribution and they call up one of the advisors or the trustees and they go, well, that's not my job. And they say, you might want to check with XYZ. And then they call up that person and say, I want to do XYZ. And they say, well, that's not my job. You need to get to the other person. So I think the first piece is making sure that the beneficiaries are very clearly educated on the roles and responsibilities of each of, it's my made up term, fiduciary service providers. Sometimes they're fiduciary, sometimes they're not. But in these directed trusts, you can have many, many, many different organizations or entities or individuals in control of different pieces of it. It can get very complex and there's a lot of opportunity for things to fall through the cracks. The second piece of it is, and I think more importantly, especially in the asset protection world, we have not seen a testing of these laws yet. And my experience in the directors and officers liability world, especially in the beginning, is certain things were set up, it made a lot of sense, and then a situation would happen, and then you would get case law that would change what everybody thought was a reality. So let me give you an example because we're following it right now. Is there's currently a case between a Houston family and a South Dakota directed trust where the allegations are that the husband hid assets in South Dakota that were marital assets. And now that they're going through a divorce, there's a question of can that spouse get access to what she thought were marital assets? And We don't know how this is going to shake out. We don't know how good or bad the fact pattern is, but this is going to be a huge test on the confidentiality and the privacy of how these trusts work. One of the things that I've seen in the course of my career when direction trusts get set up is that people get installed in these roles as investment director oftentimes, or sometimes they're part of a committee on the distribution side, or they're the ones making the distribution decisions. And I've brought up this scenario with people before, and I don't really get much in the way of agreement, (laughs) and it strikes me as a little bit scary. But especially on the investment side, I get the sense that many people who take on those roles, especially in an individual capacity, do not understand the breadth of responsibility that they're taking on, and that the prism by which they make investment decisions changes when taking on that role within the context of a trust. And I was wondering if you've seen that pop up yet. And 
even if it hasn't popped up yet, what you think we should be talking to people about in terms of protecting themselves when taking on those types of situations? Wow, that's a big, complicated question with lots of pieces to it. But I'm going to just try and simplify it in real life concern today. So let's just take COVID. And I know everybody's getting tired of what that means. But in this context, we have beneficiaries who are some who are struggling with the financial impact, and they're asking for certain kinds of distributions. And in the face of it, when the distribution trustee is making a gray area decision, and you look at, well, what does that mean from the investment piece of it? And the investment trustee has to look at it and say, well, do we liquidate these funds? What do we do with the cash? How are we going to manage through this financial volatility? I think there's going to be a lot of rear view mirror questions and litigation over, was that the appropriate decision, either from the distribution side or from the investment side? Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, certainly in situations that I deal with, Personally, I mean, the COVID discussion is extremely difficult because there's no real guidance. You try to take a position that is useful to the people that you're working with, but at the same time provides protection, both from a health perspective and from a liability perspective. And it's the Wild West out there. And in many ways, it goes back to having those good practices of documentation of decision making and documentation of execution. And you just sort of hope that that's enough. And in many ways, it goes back to the idea that for these types of decisions, making sure that you have insurance in place is all the more important. And I want to stay on that for a second, though, because this is another piece that I think is really important when people take on these various roles and responsibilities. And I'm also going to raise my hand and say, I would say once a week, I see a new term, a new role and responsibility, and a new way to execute perhaps old terms. So it's really important that in order to protect oneself, that you follow the letter of your roles and responsibilities and put in the process and procedure like you suggested. And from a liability perspective, don't go beyond that. So I was having a conversation with a potential client who their background is a CPA, they're now retired, and they've asked to be a trust protector in a very traditional sense of the trust protector, which was limited to being able to hire and fire the trustees and perhaps decant into a different jurisdiction. But because the person is extraordinarily professional and wants to do the correct job, they asked for all the investment statements and all the reports from every one of the other service providers. And now that put that person in a liability situation because they were going above and beyond the call of duty, but then also I think expands their liability because they're doing things beyond what they were asked to do. But they've now inserted themselves, and now they have to look at whether the investment trustee is performing appropriately, whether the CPA is now providing all the appropriate accounting and tax and what have you. So I think it is really important 
for people to understand exactly what their roles and responsibilities are. And from a liability perspective, stay within those guidelines. It brings up a great point where if you're doing sort of what you think is a diligent job, but you go beyond the job description, if you find something, it almost ascribes a new duty in terms of sort of acting on it and remedying that situation, which I think is what you were describing. I mean, and if you don't do it correctly, then people will come back to you and say, well, your job title was trust protector and you came upon something, even though it wasn't really your job to do it, but your ultimate job was to protect. You've got some explaining to do. Does that track? I think it's an extraordinary gray area and that's going to create a lot of liability. And I think the other piece of it is there are so many opportunities for creativity and structure, which is absolutely great for the families. And I think that all the professionals should be doing exactly what they're doing. However, because there's all this creativity and potential misunderstanding of what's available for family offices, that they need to really have somebody from a risk management perspective look at what they're doing. And I'll give you an example. I have a client right now who, it was a third generation who came to us and said, we'd like to get trustee liability insurance. I'm like, well, that's great. Send me the information. And when they sent me all the trust documents, it became really clear that Gen 1 had made their money through an investment vehicle. And that investment vehicle has stayed intact. And the people who are managing that investment vehicle are also, on one hand, co-investing with the family, and they are also trustees for all of the trusts. And when you look at it, even though it's not structured in a traditional directed trust where you have these bifurcated roles and responsibilities, they're acting as such. And the only way to put together the insurance program was to put it together as a holistic structure, including the investment vehicle as well as the trustees. And so I'm just saying that it's a very complicated world and they're being created for all the right reasons, but it's important to have somebody looking at the whole picture to make sure we can understand what the risk looks like so the policies can be structured appropriately. That's interesting. So I saw a presentation that you gave recently that talked about some of the reasonable risks that people in the trustee world are thinking about and some of the questions that people in the profession are asking. And I thought maybe we'd go through a few of them because I think these are things that are important to have in someone's radar screen. The first is sort of the Tolly world and life insurance. What are you seeing on that front? Well, we're seeing that a lot of the very complex, large life insurance contracts are underwater, meaning they're not performing as expected because we've had 10 years of low interest rates and low returns. And so the original internal rate of return calculations are not acting as they should. So somebody might look at their policy think that it's going to operate in one way, yet they're underwater by millions of dollars. And then it becomes a very difficult task for the trustee to decide what to do. So that's a very abstract conversation that I just gave. But 
from a role and responsibility, the trustee's role is to review the life insurance contract on an annual basis, make sure it's performing exactly as it was expected, and if it's not to take corrective action, and there are amazing professionals out there who can help make sure that that will stay intact and not have extraordinary costs at the time of death. Life insurance, always a tricky thing. And you talked a little bit about the presence of such long-term low interest rates. That maybe goes to the next interesting point, which is the concept of policing interfamily loans. What are you seeing on that front? We're seeing a lot of complicated decisions on how the loans are performing. And in order to get the right tax deductions, you have to make sure that it's perfected as a real loan and tracked as a real loan. And so you have to have the right interest rates, which are market standard. You have to have the family members living up to the contracts. And if neither one of those things happen, there's a lot of tax implications and there's a lot of potential disgruntled other family members. And so in this, especially again, back to this financial volatility that we're experiencing right now, the trustees have to be acting as if they really are a loan officer of a bank to keep everything intact the way it should be and not have extra liability. We haven't really gotten too much into the regulatory environment within which trusts operate, but one of the things that you listed out as being a concern is Reg BI and then the conflict between the SEC and state standards. What should trustees be thinking about in terms of those issues? Well, as far as the Reg B, everything is evolving and changing. And anytime there is evolution and change, there's no clear cut answer on how it's all going to play out. So trustees need to be watching the laws, watching the standards, watching the evolution of what the states are doing and making sure that they are following all the guidelines, which is almost an impossible task. So I get worried about that. Well, and then it goes on to the next extension, which is the state laws under which many trusts operate, they are rapidly evolving as well. And not only the states within which trusts are sightest and operate, but also the availability of advantages in other states. Those are operating or changing just as quickly. And I could foresee a situation where a trustee felt it was okay if you just held pat, but beneficiaries could argue, what if we'd moved this to a non-tax state or someplace that had other advantages? How does a trustee keep abreast of all that? And I'm going to do the reverse because with this financial volatility and with either the tax laws changing in 2025 or either administration is going to have to increase taxes. There's no question about it. And the question is, how are they going to do it? So what happens if a trustee or a trust protector or any of the people in here decanted to a low tax environment for just that reason, and now that state has increased taxes. I don't know, what do you do? And so I think back to what you're saying, the process and procedure is annual review, look at what's going on, get the professional advice, document your decision process. I think on top of that, too, when you're making a decision between jurisdictions, and if you're looking for tax purposes at different jurisdictions, it's not just the law of the state and maybe even the legislature of the state, but it's the financial health of the state as well that should be a big 
component of any decision that you make. I mean, you're as good as the data points that you have at the time you make the decision. So on one hand, I am sympathetic to people who make changes based on the information they see in front of them, but I think it's going to require more data to be documented for a lot of people who make those types of decisions. And we just don't have the history. These are relatively new laws. So it was complicated before we had financial volatility. It's even more complicated in today's environment. So we talked a little bit about the South Dakota marital case. Are there any other major cases that are on your radar screen that you think are going to have an impact throughout the industry? Well, I think one of the interesting ones was a couple of years ago, Frazier helped me with the name of it. It's escaping me right now. Not the Kastner case. Not sure, but I can fix that in the show notes. The scenario was basically, it was a Missouri beneficiary versus a South Dakota trust, and it was a tax case. And Missouri was saying, we believe that because the beneficiary is in Missouri, we have the ability to collect income tax. And the South Dakota laws were set up to say, no, if you do all the following things, there should be no implication to the beneficiary. And in this case, South Dakota law held up, and that's terrific. But it's because they did five basic things correctly. So the question then becomes, all right, we now have a first precedence on how the case is going to be litigated. But now what happens if you have similar laws in, I'm just throwing this out, in Wyoming, and now the beneficiary is a California beneficiary? And do we think it'll work out the same way? Maybe, maybe not. Or what happens if four of the five things were done correctly, but one wasn't? And then does it work out? And I think it's just, we just are seeing the beginnings of the testing of these cases and to figure out what are the best practices to make sure everything stays intact. And then that gets back to a lot of choice of law conflict. I talk to people all the time saying, look, a lot of the planning that you're doing is in furtherance of different goals. And many times the area is gray and taken to its nth degree, you're probably up at the Supreme Court deciding whether one state or the other's law controls, or even if there's a federal component to it in the case of asset protection and bankruptcy and things like that, which is to say that this is a complicated and murky task. And that goes back to our comment that to the extent you can document why you did things, that gives the trustee, the one ultimately making the decision, at least a little bit of comfort that they're doing the best given the circumstances that they're in. And what I also think is fascinating is you just take a look at South Dakota, who basically says any litigation gets sealed. Well, how accurate is that? Especially in light of this one case, not everything was sealed and it turned out to be a good case and everybody won. But I think this promotion of the litigation gets sealed so that we don't know what all the precedent setting cases are is going to be a really interesting trend to follow. That is going to be, I was going to talk about your predictions for future trends in a second, and I will, but one more couple of bullet points here is the concept of sort of investing in internal and external funds and the presence of conflict of interest in mutual funds and things like that. This is a particular bugaboo of mine, especially when dealing with proprietary products and the concept of active versus passive and low cost versus high cost and various components of decision making there. 
what are trustees worried about on that front? Well, it depends on in what role you are as a trustee and who you are. So if you're completely independent, obviously that's not as much of a challenge as if you're the investment trustee from an institution and there's pressure to look internally versus externally. And this has gotten litigated time and time and time again, but the plaintiff's bar hasn't stopped coming after it. So for the most part, the institutions have won thus far, but because the plaintiff's bar keeps pushing this issue, I don't think we know what the ultimate answer is on that one either. And sometimes there's a reason to take a more expensive fund because of stability or track record, but sometimes it doesn't make sense. So I think it's, a, again, a complicated one if you are an investment trustee and you work for an institution and you have the access to internal funds and external funds. I look at a lot of recent ERISA litigation where proprietary funds were put into 401k plans and things like that. And most financial institutions are settling because the conflict of interest is too great. The active versus passive argument, or I should say low cost effectiveness versus high cost ineffectiveness argument is just too great. And it's dangerous because it could really spoil the broth in terms of the overall business model for a lot of these things. And I personally think that some of those ERISA concepts are going to bleed over into the trustee world. And for those people who are making investment decisions, but we'll see, as you said, it's complicated. And in many ways, the damages are sort of somewhere between significant and not big enough to care. (laughs) And so it's a difficult thing for people to really litigate to the nth degree where you get some rule of law that can be used for further decision making. But anyway, one man's opinion. (laughs) Yeah, but the flip side of that too, and I don't know how we get around it, is the ecosystem of investing is really, there aren't that many opportunities unless you're doing alternative asset classes and direct investments. Because almost every advisor that comes to me, and I'm talking this on a personal level now, They talk about all the different things that they have available to themselves and what have you, but they're really on the same platforms. It's SEI or InvestNet or Fidelity or what have you. There just aren't that many options. So I don't know how you distinguish that issue. Yeah, no, I think there's a metric developing sort of the idea of an active management value ratio where is the active manager that you are putting your investments in, are they shifting away from the index enough to warrant the fee? Or do they have enough performance to warrant the fee? And do they have the sort of process in place to warrant the fee? And that to me is, if you can get metrics around that, I think that's going to be a standard upon which investment trustees, whether at the corporate level or individuals who have to do it, they're going to have to justify at some point why am I not in a Vanguard index fund? And if you choose an active manager that fails on a few of those pillars, that's not going to (laughs) work. And so I don't know, that to me is something that may be a future outcome, obviously difficult to litigate, uh, a lot of moving parts. If COVID happens, are you going to really punish everybody for something that no one could really know about? But it goes back to the idea that keeping costs low is usually a pretty good strategy in investing and When you go out and pick active managers, there's got to be a really, really good reason why, but more to come on that, I suppose. Correct. So 
we're going to start winding down here in a second. What trends do you see in the future occurring in the trustee world, especially around liability? In my world, I'm seeing hybrid situations where trustees are reaching out and engaging with corporate or law firm resources in order to help them do their jobs better. Things like special purpose entities, which provide LLC type protection and nexus benefits for people who want more want expertise beyond what's happening on the ground. And another idea I had was maybe the idea of insurance pooling for individual trustees. Any of those valid from your perspective? And are you seeing anything different? So I think the first question about the hybrid solution, I actually really believe the best risk management tool any trustee can have is to find the experts and delegate the roles and responsibilities to those experts, whether they be the lawyers, the CPAs, the administrative trust companies, the larger trust companies, depending on what you are. So you have to look at each trust, figure out what you're really good at, and figure out who you need to hire to make sure that you're managing your exposure. So number one, I think that that's really important. And I think a lot of the friends and family type trustees don't realize the resources out there for them. So that's number one. Number two, all these different special purpose entities and LLC wrappers and all of that, I think they become very complex and offer limited risk mitigation. And so I think it's really important that you identify what the risk looks like, mitigate as much as you can, but trustees have personal liability and they should have insurance. So that's the way I look at the process. From an insurance pooling perspective, I think that there are some opportunities. One of the things that we didn't talk about about the insurance world right now is we're in what's called a hard market. And that's characterized by increasing premium and reduction in coverage. And so the insurance industry is trying to ensure their own financial health and longevity, but on the flip side are putting the trustees in a very big risk position. And I'm talking about not only the individuals, but the institutions. And there are a lot of people very upset with 300% increases in premium or reductions in coverage. And this is the type of market where new solutions get created. I think insurance pooling, which could be things like risk retention groups or captive insurance companies or other types of risk transfer vehicles, we're all investigating these. From a longevity perspective, you just have to be really careful on how they're structured and make sure that they make sense. So it sounds like I didn't give an answer. I think they make a lot of sense in certain situations and they make no sense in others. Like I was just reading an article in the directors and officers liability world. There's a small trend for CEOs to indemnify directors for liability. And there's so many reasons why that doesn't work. So you just have to just like everything else, keep looking at the options, but make sure that you really investigate the devil in the details. Well, we've probably covered enough material to scare anybody away from becoming a trustee or anything 
to try to assume those roles. And I know that's not the intent. It's really more to understand what you're getting into when you take on that responsibility. For current trustees and future trustees, what's a good first step to analyze their situation and get themselves not only oriented to the role, but also protected? So the professionals out there who are already doing this, the lawyers, the CPAs, whatever, extraordinarily important, but you need to add a risk management specialist to it or an insurance person who really understands this industry. It's a very complex industry. And a lot of people say that they know how to insure it, but they don't really understand exactly what's going on and how to analyze it and how to really puzzle piece the insurance policies together. So bring a risk management specialist that really knows what they're doing into the conversation with the other professionals. Terrific. So Judy, thank you very much for coming on. Lots to think about, and I think this can be very helpful to a lot of people in the industry. How do we keep track of you and Nomadics? You can find us on LinkedIn. Our website is www.nomadicssolutions.com. And feel free to reach out to Fraser to get my contact information. I'd love to chat with anybody that has any questions. Terrific. And I will put all of that information in the show notes so that people can click to it directly. Judy, thank you very much. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you, Frazier. Great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.